0: This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit lifevestresults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular
1: disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds
0: everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Carter Nerds. We are in for a serious treat as we discuss a very challenging and important case within cardiology. We are visiting the great state of Ohio where we are meeting our friends Essa Hariri, Anna Scandinaro, Becca Bakhtazi, Ashley Casper, and Craig Paris. Friends, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself one by one to our listeners?
1: Hey everyone. I'm Isa Hariri. I am a third year, just graduated internal medicine resident. I am joining the chief residency in Cleveland Clinic for internal medicine and I will be applying for cardiology fellowship this summer. I'm very excited to record this episode.
2: I'm Anna Scandinaro. I just graduated with Issa from Cleveland Clinic for internal medicine residency. I will be starting my cardiology fellowship in a couple weeks at Penn State Hershey and I'm really excited to be here and talk about this case with everyone.
3: Hey Dan, I'm Becca Bakhtazi. I'm finishing my second year of general cardiology fellowship here at Kunal Clinic and I will be joining a year from now an international fellowship here as well. I'm excited to be becoming part of CardioNerds. I had a pleasure of working with Anna and Issa, both of them, in our cardiac see you, so I'm excited about the case presentation.
4: Hi, everyone. My name is Ashley Casper. I am one of the clinical cardiology pharmacists at Cleveland Clinic, and I primarily practice in the cardiac ICU. Thanks for inviting me to participate in this episode.
5: Hi, I am Craig Paris. I'm a family and psychiatric nurse practitioner from the Ohio State University's Department of Psychiatry. I took the trip up to Cleveland to talk about
0: this case with you. I'm excited to be here. Oh, Craig, this is great that you were able to join us here, although I definitely have my eye set out to visit Columbus, Ohio. It's home with my mother-in-laws and we talk about columbus all the time very fondly so isa becca ashley and craig welcome to cardio nerds and thank you and everybody can already see that this is going to be a very important multidisciplinary collaborative episode so why don't we settle down now that we're in cleveland at one of your favorite places and talk about cardiology where are we going
1: so, all four of us, specifically me and Rebecca and Ashley, were involved in the care of the patient that we will be discussing today at multiple time points during the patient's care. And so, we decided to, you know, join efforts and talk about this case and bring up some interesting teaching points. And with the help of Craig, we will also get some more insight into how to deal with this challenging situation. So, I will be starting actually with the case presentation briefly, like an overview, and then I will pass it along to Anna and Becca to give their insight as the first responders when this patient presented to the CICU here at Cleveland Clinic. So in order to discuss this wonderful case, we decided to come all together To the wonderful Edgewater Park in the heart of Cleveland, which we highly recommend given it's a nice sunny day, finally, early June, and sit down and watch the sunset while we talk about this case and try to learn some interesting cardiology concepts.
0: Well, Lisa, then let's just jump right in. And so why don't we start at the beginning? Tell us the story about this patient.
1: Perfect. So we are presenting today a patient who is a 37-year-old African-American man who has a long-standing history of paranoid schizophrenia with multiple admissions for psychiatric reasons. A month prior to presentation, he was hospitalized at a local hospital for paranoia, and he was started on clozapine and injectable flufenazine. One week after discharge, he presented to the same hospital with tachycardia, tachypnea, hypotension, and altered mental status requiring intubation upon arrival. A CT scan of his chest was negative for pulmonary embolism, but shows extensive bilateral interstitial infiltrates. As we have been in the middle of a pandemic, the patient tested for COVID, but the initial test was negative. Given the high suspicion and the CT findings, he was found to have elevated inflammatory markers including CRP. D-dimer, and ferritin, and again, repeat COVID tests subsequently were negative. His troponin levels were interestingly elevated, which was concerning for NSTEMI, so he was placed on heparin drip and treated for possible sepsis with broad-spectrum antibiotics. During his short stay at this local hospital, an echocardiogram was done due to the patient's altered hemodynamics, which showed an ejection fraction of 20%, with no prior echocardiogram to compare. He further developed AFib with RVR, And he was started on amiodrip. And in light of his worsening clinical condition and escalating level of care, the decision was decided to be transferred to our critical care ICU and the CICU at the Cleva Clinic at main campus. And this is when Anna and Becca assumed his care overnight.
2: So thank you, Issa, for giving us that summary of the patient's care at the outside hospital. That was essentially what we were told by the transfer center. But what we were aware of with this patient coming in was, so we had a gentleman coming in who was intubated, sedated, and hypotensive with concern for new onset heart failure. So starting with his vitals and physical exam, on arrival, his vitals, his blood pressure was 88 over 55. His pulse was 77. His temperature, he was afebrile, intubated on pressure control ventilation with an FiO2 of 40. On physical exam, He was intubated and sedated, no notable skin findings except for multiple tattoos, no JVD. His lungs had coarse breath sounds bilaterally. On my exam, his cardiac exam was pretty unremarkable. His abdomen was soft and he had no lower extremity edema, no cyanosis, no clubbing, no discoloration. And neurologically, he was sedated, but was able to interact with us appropriately for his level of consciousness next we can look at his labs on presentation. His sodium was 127, so hyponatremic. Potassium was 4.7. His creatinine was elevated at 1.47 and he was hyperglycemic with a glucose of 341. His liver enzymes were elevated with an AST of 305 and an ALT of 293. He was hypoalbuminemic with albumin of 2.9. His CBC was remarkable for leukocytosis with a white count of 20. Hemoglobin and hematocrit were stable, and his coagulation labs were relatively unremarkable. Troponin T of 0.7 on presentation to the outside hospital was 2.6, so was trending down by the time he came to our cardiac ICU. His NT-proBNP was 25,000, and his lactate on presentation was 1.8 to our CICU on admission to the outside hospital. Was 3.2, so also coming down. He had some outside labs looking at different infectious etiologies. His blood cultures were negative. He had a Legionella, a Mycoplasma, a Strep Pneumo, which were all negative. Hepatitis B and C, as well as HIV, were also negative. His TSH at the outside hospital was initially low at 0.136. So putting together this patient with their vital signs, physical exam, and the labs that we've obtained so far. We have evidence of malperfusion to different organ systems with the elevated creatinine, with the elevated liver enzymes. We have a lactate of 1.8. And so moving on to the CBC, we have an elevated white blood cell count. And then we also have these elevated cardiac markers, our elevated troponin, and then looking at our NT-proBNP. So we have this undifferentiated shock picture leading us towards whether or not this is a septic shock or a cardiogenic shock is where we were. So we wanted to get more investigation here. So the first thing we got was a chest x-ray. Our chest x-ray showed the ETT tube in place of cardiomegaly and bilateral opacities. This was compared to the chest x-ray presentation to the outside hospital, which was essentially the same with this cardiomegaly and these bilateral opacities. His EKG on presentation to our cardiac ICU was relatively unremarkable. He was in normal sinus rhythm at the time. We did get information in his transfer that he had gone into atrial fibrillation while he was there in the outside hospital, but now he was in normal sinus rhythm. At this time, we obtained a point-of-care ultrasound in our cardiac ICU, We saw biventricular dysfunction with no major valvular abnormalities. So based off of the imaging findings that we've obtained, we have a patient with bilateral infiltrates, biventricular dysfunction. The question is is still, does this undifferentiated shock, is this more of a sepsis picture that's leading to some cardiac strain or is this a cardiogenic shock picture that's causing more of an inflammatory reaction? In the setting of this undifferentiated shock, we wanted to obtain more information. So we took this patient to our procedure room for a swan gans catheter to further define the patient's hemodynamics to determine the best course of action and treatment for this patient. The initial hemodynamics from our swan gans catheter, the central venous pressure was 21 millimeters of mercury. Our pulmonary artery mean pressure was 35 millimeters of mercury. Pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was 26 our cardiac output was calculated at 3.03 and cardiac index of 1.46. The myocardial oxygen consumption was measured at 50%. So based off of the swan gans catheter numbers showed elevated right and left-sided pressures with a low cardiac index and the myocardial oxygen consumption low level of 50% was suggestive of a cardiogenic shock picture. All right. So overnight, the patient was continued on infusion of amiodarone for his new onset atrial fibrillation. In the setting of elevated troponin and concern for possible ischemic etiology, he was continued on a heparin drip. He was sedated with fentanyl, and due to his persistent hypotension, was continued on norepinephrine drip. We did keep him on broad-spectrum antibiotics overnight to cover a possible etiology of sepsis, even though his imaging and his hemodynamics were suggestive of a cardiogenic cause of his shock.
3: Alright, thank you, Anna, for a summary of the initial presentation. We are the overnight team trying to stabilize the patient, start the workup process going. As you already summarized, we have the young gentleman who has pressure requirements and appears to be in cardiogenic shock without clear cut etiology of us being aware of it. So obviously we already stabilized the patient, we have initial hemodynamic assessment, we have him on appropriate pressure support, and we're thinking considering that we're at the clinical clinic ICU to possibly introduce him to acelerate reduction based on his SVR and all other measurements we have. But I think overnight, we also sat back and thought about what could be the possible etiology behind the patient's presentation. As we already saw, we have no onset by ventricular dysfunction. With the patient, there is no major significant cardiac history that would hint either way. So we have our differential diagnosis broad at this point. Obviously, we're covering for ischemic etiologies, which is still unlikely because we mentioned that we had chest CT obtained of the patient. We have noticed zero calcium in his coronaries. We are now inclining towards whether this could be something or not ischemic genesis. Could this be etiology of viral myocarditis? Could this be or literally anything else from a uh, non-ischemic cardiomyopathy differential diagnosis list. So overnight, we came up with a plan of what do we need to stabilize the patient? What is the diagnosis that we are committing to manage the overnight issues? And what would be the next steps going forward? And obviously, the first step to coming to my mind would be to rule out most common cause of this would be to rule out coronary disease, which you had pursued. And then we have come up with the plan of what can we do about non-ischemic evaluation including the cardiac MRI. So with all the measures of IV diuresis, swangens guided therapy, heparinization and pressure supports, actually patient's clinical status has improved. His pressure requirements has come down. His hemodynamic findings have normalized. His right-sided and left-sided filling pressures have improved with supporting measures as we have listed above. And there was maybe minimal consideration of possible temporary mechanical circulatory support, which was not necessary, thankfully. So by the morning during rounds, we already have patient who has been somewhat stabilized with the improving clinical picture with undifferentiated etiology behind cardiogenic shock.
1: Thank you, Anna and Becca, for summarizing the overnight events very nicely. And I think by the time I was the day resident taking care of this young man, when I received him from overnight team, he was pretty well stabilized and somewhat of a good condition relative to how you presented. With an idea in mind about where are we heading in terms of his diagnostic workup because it was somewhat obvious at this point that we're dealing with a patient with cardiogenic shock secondary to most likely a non-ischemic cardiomyopathy but we'll do our due diligence as the day team with all the workup that you have suggested after all the tests and invasive tests that you did overnight. It was pretty obvious also how important is the specialized critical care field that has been evolving over the years and the fascinating stories and cases that we see in our cardiac ICU, including this gentleman and how the multidisciplinary approach that you guys did overnight was very important to stabilize him and keep him in good condition before we even think about the differential diagnosis. And a lot of papers and studies have been published about how this field has been growing and how fellowships sub-fellowships have been developed to train future cardiologists who are interested in critical care for this particular field. To summarize quickly, you know, we have a young man in cardiogenic shock and good response to initial medical therapy guided by invasive pulmonary artery catheter monitoring, which was reflected in improvement in his organ dysfunction with his AKI resolving and his mixed venous oxygen increasing by the morning hours. Now, the major question at this point is, why did he develop a new onset heart failure and went into cardiogenic shock? That was the first question that came to our mind in the morning. And as with every new diagnosis of heart failure, common things are common. And our first step, of course, was to keep the patient stable, intubated, and sedated, not just to keep him alive and in uh, good condition from a perfusion standpoint, but it will help us pursue our workup in much more ease. The first step was to do a diagnostic left heart cath, as Becca alluded to, with no plans to load him with any dual antiplatelet therapy because our suspicion for ACS was low at that point. And as we were expecting, the left heart cath did not show any evidence of obstructive coronary disease. So we were very convinced there's no question about the fact that we are dealing with a patient with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. A lot of the workup that was done overnight helped us in guiding where we go. Next, the echo, bedside echo, and the formal echo that we repeated in our ICU the following day did not really show any evidence of pericardial diffusion. A lot of the point-of-care tests ruled out viral etiologies, you know, specifically COVID, flu, and HIV. And at this point, we were contemplating whether the patient would be stable enough to undergo cardiac MRI. And following that, we kept him on mechanical ventilation, which definitely was a barrier to the image quality that we could have obtained. And after sending an extensive viral panel, everything essentially was negative for a viral etiology of his cardiomyopathy. After we diuresed the patient to euvolemia at this point and initiated guideline directed medical therapies with beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and at that point he was out of the shock period and was ready to be out of the ICU and we even didn't see any evidence of recurrence of his atrial fibrillation he was hemodynamically stable for more than 24 hours and following that we decided to transition him to the floor to continue managing his heart failure and continue the workup with further imaging Now, at that point, we also were thinking more out of the box. Of course, with the help of our pharmacist and the specialist that we had to consult for its care, particularly for his mental illness, we had a thought about drug-induced cardiomyopathy for this gentleman, and more specifically for clozapine-induced cardiomyopathy, which was a medication that was new and that was started a week prior to admission. And our quick review of literature during Grounds Have yielded a lot of positive cases about this medication causing cardiomyopathy, which we will touch on in a bit. All right. So, as the patient remained hemodynamically stable for more than 24 hours, we decided to transition him to the regular floor to continue managing his heart failure. And at that time, you know, our brain was, you know, scratching hard to whether why this patient developed acute heart failure. And we were Googling a lot of different things during rounds at that point where our discussion usually happens about every single patient in the morning. And we were consulting our specialists and experts to help with other non-cardiac needs for this guy. And who better to turn to when it comes to thinking about drugs as a possible etiology for his cardiomyopathy than our pharmacist who was running with us during that time, Ashley Casper. So why don't you help us with this guy and how we came up to his diagnosis.
4: Thanks, Isa. This case is a great example of drug-induced cardiomyopathy, which, as you pointed out, is not as common as ischemic cardiomyopathy or other non-ischemic or infiltrative cardiomyopathies, but is a very common, serious adverse effect of multiple drug therapies. This includes some chemotherapeutic agents like our anthracyclines, monoclonal antibodies, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and our alkylating agents. We also know that there are some antiretroviral therapies that are associated with drug-induced cardiomyopathy. And just as this patient case, we now know that there are some antipsychotic agents. All of these may have some incidences of drug-induced cardiomyopathy occurring up to 20%. So as highlighted in this case, and similarly for any patient presentation, it's crucial not only to have a differential, but really to develop a patient-centric differential, which is imperative in treating this particular patient. One helpful resource I've found is an American Heart Association scientific statement that addresses and is also entitled drugs that may cause or exacerbate heart failure. This document is a great reference and provides a list of prescription medications that have been associated with the development or worsening of heart failure based on case reports, case series, package inserts, meta-analyses, as well as prospective and observational trials. Honestly, I really do appreciate the distinction the authors are making in this article in identifying drugs that either directly cause myocardial toxicity, as well as those drugs that exacerbate underlying heart failure, which I'm sure we could all agree is a super important distinction. As in this patient case, the culprit drug clozapine is a second-generation antipsychotic agent that's frequently prescribed for refractory schizophrenia, psychosis, or bipolar disorder. And honestly, it has a rather unattractive side effect profile, most of which is included in the boxed warnings. Severe neutropenia may be the most familiar adverse effect, That's the one that I most commonly think of, and it is because of this adverse effect that the drug is only available through a restricted program under a risk evaluation mitigation strategy, or REMS program, which requires regular monitoring of the absolute neutrophil count. In addition to this neutropenia, clozapine also has a boxed warning informing prescribers of the potential direct myocardial toxicity, leading to new onset heart failure through an IgE-mediated hypersensitivity reaction and quite possibly calcium channel blockade. The onset of cardiac complications, especially this cardiomyopathy, can occur days but also months to potentially years after the initiation of clozapine therapy with an incidence between 0.02 and 0.1%. On the other hand, there are drugs that are often implicated in the exacerbation of underlying myocardial dysfunction that can lead to worsening heart failure or an acute decompensation. This scenario, in my opinion and in my professional experience, is more commonly seen given the regular use of these both acute and chronically used medications. Hopefully, this list of drug classes is very familiar to the listeners on today's podcast. This includes our non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, some of the anti-diabetic agents, including the thiazolidinediones as well as the DPP-4 inhibitors and some antidepressants. And especially in the cardiac ICU setting, we have many sedative agents that can exacerbate heart failure, namely propofol, dexmetatamidine, as well as ketamine with varying mechanisms of action. We also have cardiac medications that can exacerbate heart failure. Our antiarrhythmic drugs, including our class 1Cs, flecainide and propafenone, are one of the class 3 drugs, dronadarone, and the class 4 non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. It's important to recognize and respect these common and familiar drugs as they can have unfavorable effects in patients with known cardiovascular disease as well as compensated heart failure. Managing this patient's cardiogenic shock with an experienced multidisciplinary team was relatively simple. As you all know, we do see cardiogenic shock and treat it almost daily in the cardiac ICU. However, what was more challenging was recognizing a less common but still significant etiology of his cardiomyopathy so that we could appropriately treat this patient.
0: Well, Ashley, that is fantastic. And what an amazing rundown on so many of the different drug classes that we may encounter but may not be as familiar with. For example, the last time I got close to clozapine was probably in my third year medical school rotation, which I do not want to say how long ago that was. So let me ask you this follow-up question. How do you make the diagnosis of clozapine-induced cardiomyopathy or how confident are you that that's the etiology for this patient's non-ischemic cardiomyopathy?
4: So I think in this specific patient case, it's going to be kind of crossing out the differential. So ruling out what this patient could have. We know that their coronaries were clean, so we're not concerned about an ischemic cardiomyopathy. And then as I mentioned, taking into consideration different patient characteristics. If we're ruling out more common causes of cardiomyopathy and then we identify something that may lead to it, I think it's worthwhile to investigate if clozapine was the true culprit in causing his cardiomyopathy.
3: Ashley, thank you for summarizing. So as we talked about, we have to cross several differential diagnoses from the list, obviously. We already said that patient coronaries are clean. This rules out, obviously, ischemic etiology, which is very unlikely in this young patient. So for the next step, once we remove this fungal and patient was extubated, we have pursued cardiac MRI to evaluate myriads of differential diagnoses. Fortunately enough, with supportive care and several days in the ICU and introduction of some guideline-directed medical management, the most important finding of the cardiac MRI by the time we got it was actually a full recovery of biometricular function to up to normal. There is minimal non specific stripe of delight enhancement in the basal septum that it was thought to be by multiple imagers at our institutions, so not to be specific to any of the possible etiologists. So this was kind of labeled as non relevant finding on the imaging. But again, to summarize the cardiac MRI findings on this patient completely recovered by ventricular function with a minimal non specific strife of delayed enhancement that only at the basal septum.
2: One thing that really struck me about this patient as I was following along chart reviewing to see how this patient was doing was when the diagnosis or the suspicion of clozapine-induced cardiomyopathy came up. Clozapine is a medication that I have no experience with. I think most of us that go into internal medicine haven't had experience with it since our psychiatry rotation in medical school. And I was very interested in the psychiatric input on this case. So thank you, Craig, for being with us today. I'd like to ask you a couple questions about clozapine. Ashley spoke a little bit about what is clozapine, but I was wondering if you could tell us why do we use clozapine? Ashley had mentioned that there's a lot of side effects that can be kind of scary, but why is clozapine such an important medication?
5: Yeah, so clozapine is, you know, as was mentioned, is a medication that's pretty notorious for a lot of its bothersome side effects, potentially lethal side effects, most famous for the agranulocytosis risk, which is why it has some pretty strict blood monitoring guidelines. You know, when you hear about all these side effects, you wonder like, well, why would anyone use this medication, especially in, in a patient group that's pretty reluctant to take a lot of medications? And the reason is that for a large number of people who have schizophrenia, clozapine's one of the only medications that will work. As was mentioned, it's approved for treatment refractory schizophrenia, which represents somewhere between like 30 or 40% of people who have schizophrenia. And in someone who is treatment refractory, using any antipsychotic other than clozapine has a less than 5% chance of being successful versus starting somebody on clozapine that needs it having like a 40 or even maybe 50% chance of being successful. Clause means also, you know, for those that are able to take it and remain on it, it's a better medication. It manages their symptoms more effectively and it leads to better health outcomes long-term. So it can be somewhat feared for a lot of its side effects or both the dangerous ones and the not so dangerous ones. But for patients that take the medication, they have better health outcomes, less risk of suicide, less risk of cardiovascular mortality specifically, and less all-cause mortality. They live longer and they do better.
2: Thank you for that, Craig. The next question that I'd like to ask you is, since we know about the effects of clozapine on the heart, Is there any monitoring that you do cardiac-wise before you start clozapine or after starting clozapine?
5: Yes, there definitely is. In any individual we're considering starting on clozapine, we'll get kind of a baseline laboratory workup, which includes like a CMP and CBC, which is required to even start it. We'll also get baseline kind of inflammatory markers, specifically a CRP, as well as troponin And BNP on individuals that we're going to start clozapine on. And I'll kind of talk about that, I think, a little bit more down the line. But so anyone that's going to start the medication will check those things to establish a baseline. And then anybody who has any concern for cardiac risks or significant cardiac history will consider getting an echocardiogram. Everybody gets an EKG before starting any antipsychotic where I work and where most people treat psychiatric disorders.
2: So after listening to this case, Craig, based off your experience with cardiotoxicity from clozapine, do you have any insights or thoughts about the mechanism here or the course of the timeline with the clozapine and diagnosing this as a cardiotoxic event from clozapine?
5: Yeah. So as I mentioned, prior to initiating anyone on clozapine, we'll get some baseline labs, which included C-reactive protein, troponin, and very natriuretic peptide. And the reason we do that is to look for any sort of like early warning signs that somebody is experiencing any intolerance to the initiation of clozapine, specifically as it relates to inflammation. So clozapine itself, even just like initiating someone on the medication is associated with some inflammatory process in an uncertain number of people, probably more than the literature base suggests, end up getting like more significant problems like cardiac toxicity. And the earliest warning sign that you tend to find with that is an elevation of the CRP. And that can be pretty significant in patients on clozapine because of the way it's metabolized. It's metabolized in the CYP450 system, primarily by 1A2, which is impacted pretty significantly with any sort of like inflammatory process. So what can happen is if you start someone on clozapine and they have an inflammatory process, their body is not breaking down the clozapine as fast as it typically would or as fast as like an average person's would. And that can lead to kind of a feedback or a feed-forward loop where the amount of clozapine in their system is, I guess, exponentially increasing more than you would anticipate, which further increases inflammation and then further reduces their metabolism. And that can very commonly lead to cardiac toxicity. And so we discussed the dosing of the medication because rapid titration is a high risk for development of cardiac toxicity or any sort of inflammation in response to clozapine. And it sounds like this patient was titrated rather quickly from the starting dose, which is 12.5 milligrams, up to and Fifty milligrams in five days, which is a very rapid titration. So I would suspect, in this case specifically, a rapid titration contributed to probably an inflammatory response, which pretty quickly led to cardiac toxicity that you guys outlined. And then you know that tends to resolve rather quickly with supportive care, as you also outlined. So it seems pretty typical of clozapine associated cardiac toxicity that was unfortunately probably a result of the medication being titrated up too quickly.
2: With clozapine-induced toxicity, we commonly think about, well, myocarditis was the one I remember being classically taught in medical school, but we had talked about this as a possible dilate cardiomyopathy. Is there anything we see specifically timeline-wise or anything else that we can differentiate between the myocarditis and the dilate cardiomyopathy?
5: So that's uh, it's an interesting situation in this case because, you know, the timeline of this fits more typically with like a clozapine-induced myocarditis. The fact that it happened relatively quickly or early after the introduction of clozapine, about 87% of cases of clozapine myocarditis happen within the first three to four weeks of clozapine initiation versus the cardiomyopathy statistics, which I've not found them as much in the literature, tend to show a much more variable timeline as Ashley described, kind of like an onset that can happen relatively quick versus one that can happen like months or years out. I think the average is about eight months. The last time I read it, average onset is about eight months after initiation.
2: Is there any monitoring that you would recommend following clozapine-induced cardiomyopathy for this patient or any patient that has a adverse cardiac event while taking clozapine?
5: Yeah, I think that kind of largely is determined by whether or not they stay on the medication. So the majority of people that develop a cardiac toxicity as a result of clozapine end up being taken off of it, in which case I think probably the cardiac follow-up would be, you know, what is typical for anyone who'd had a drug-induced cardiomyopathy. We have had at Ohio State with the psychiatrist I work with, we've had a number of patients who have developed some degree of inflammation, including some that have developed confirmed myocarditis, that were able to remain on the medication with very, very close monitoring, reduction of the dose, and kind of like much more frequent laboratory monitoring. For those patients, the the inflammatory response was fairly brief and you know, following the labs, we saw a resolution of the inflammation. We always get cardiac imaging, usually echocardiogram and cardiac MRI with follow-up echocardiogram, ideally prior to them leaving the hospital, so within a couple of weeks of the initial cardiac issue or the initial like suspicion of myocarditis, and then get a follow-up echocardiogram three months beyond that to ensure that the ejection fractions remain stable and they tend to do well. There's less of a literature base on continuing patients with clozapine who've developed a cardiomyopathy, especially one that's developed it far out beyond the initial titration of clozapine. So I don't have any personal experience, nor have I read any experience about patients who developed a cardiomyopathy being continued on the medication, though there's a growing literature base for patients being continued on clozapine after developing some degree of myocarditis, as long as it's not like, severe enough to compromise their cardiac function in a dangerous way.
2: So, would you ever retrial this patient on clozapine if they came into your clinic or into the psychiatric hospital and knowing this history?
5: Very good question. And I think it would be reasonable. There would be a number of specific things that I think we would need to know. You know, it sounds like he has a history of treatment refractory schizophrenia. So if we're assuming that he has failed at least two true therapeutic trials of and we know for sure that the only medication that will help him is clozapine. I think you could very much make the argument to retry him. It should be done after a pretty extended period of time beyond this incident. So I would want to ensure that his cardiac function had returned to normal and I would want to get more information about the process of what happened when he was initiated on it. So as we talked about, it seems a pretty safe assumption that the speed with which his dose was increased largely contributed to the severity of what he experienced, though that's still an assumption. And it would be something that could be further confirmed if we had like clozapine levels, if serum levels of the amount of clozapine in his system as the medication was being titrated. Usually what we will do is after one week of being on the medication, when we go to repeat the ANC, which is required, as well as repeat the CRP, troponin, and BNP, uh, among other labs, we'll also check a clozapine level. That takes a little while to come back because it's a send-out lab for a lot of places, but it can kind of show us early on if this person outside of any sort of inflammatory issue has somewhat of an anomalous metabolizing tendency with clozapine. So if their level is higher than we would expect, that would also be something that you would keep in mind. So usually when you're retrialing a patient, you want to ensure that the previous issues have resolved and you would go much more slowly, like at probably a half milligram increments like on every other day or every day basis versus the much more rapid titration that was described. You would also want to involve him in the decision-making process of this, and that can be somewhat complicated by somebody who's experiencing persistent psychosis in terms of their ability to provide informed consent. If we think that there's a patient who deserves a retrial of the medication and it seems like medically appropriate to do so, we'll also try to involve any sort of like shared decision makers like family members or outpatient providers they've seen for a long time, that kind of thing. Because it is the risk to attempt, though, given what sounds like a pretty clear cause of this issue, it would seem reasonable in the future if medically appropriate.
2: That's a great segue into what I wanted to ask you about next um, is social determinants of health with this patient. In heart failure, there's, of course, a big push as there is in in everywhere in medicine of thinking about the social determinants of health of our patients and how that affects their care with a patient that has a psychiatric disorder like this patient, especially one requiring a medication like clozapine. I was wondering if you could touch on that for us and things we should take into account when managing this patient going forward.
5: Yeah, when I think about you know the patients that I work with, a lot of the social determinants of their care are, are no different than any other type of patient population. Though they're usually probably more impacted by the discrepancies, discrimination. I think is a pretty safe thing to say is a, a huge issue. Among individuals with mental health conditions, especially like severe persistent mental illnesses like schizophrenia, you know, there's a fairly recent amount of data kind of showing that. Well, like I described, so clozapine is a very effective medication. It's a medication that has a lot of kind of legwork behind it. You know, you need to be able to do lab work consistently. You need to be able to be consistent with taking the medication, and you need to be able to discuss any sort of side effects that you're experiencing to make sure that you get the appropriate care. So there's oftentimes a reluctance to initiate clozapine or or even other medications that have somewhat complex prescribing on a lot of individuals kind of assuming, well, you know, they're not someone who's going to continuously take their medication or they don't have the kind of support, like specifically, you know, they are homeless. They don't have the kind of like structure or support they need to be able to maintain this medication. You know, unfortunately, that tends to be the people who need this medication the most have experienced, you know, persistent psychotic symptoms for a long time, which makes it very difficult to maintain housing and makes it difficult to maintain a support system around them. So, we try to avoid making any sort of assumption about somebody's willingness to be persistent with what is required of the medication when determining whether or not they should start it. And the reason being for a good amount of people who are prescribed clozapine even if they've experienced psychotic symptoms for quite a long time, they can have a very robust response and it can be a life-changing medication. So I kind of like shudder when I hear people kind of describe a reluctance to utilize medication, a medication like this in someone based on, you know, housing issues, based on social supports, based on race. I mean, there's fairly recent evidence that African-Americans and more so than other minorities, but minorities most so than, you know, Caucasian people that are much less likely to be prescribed clozapine and much more likely to be prescribed like long acting injectable antipsychotics, kind of based on this false assumption that they, you know, won't be compliant with the medication or they can't be compliant with the medication.
2: Thank you for that. Yeah. When I was thinking about this patient in particular, you know, heart failure regimen medications, we often are doing a beta blocker that's once or twice a day and ACE inhibitor or an ARB that's once a day, spironolactone or some other MRA, and the list is kind of going on, SGLD2. And thinking about this patient in particular with possible struggles, homelessness, lack of social support, being able to advocate for himself. I think it's just really important that we think about this if we're seeing patients like this that are coming in, and this is their etiology of heart failure. So thank you for touching on that. It's important, I think, that we all keep that in mind when we're taking care of our patients as their background and their struggles. My last question, thanks again, Craig, is, is there anything else that you think we should know as internists and cardiologists and pharmacists about clozapine and or clozapine-induced cardiotoxicity?
5: Sure. So, from a medical standpoint, I think we've talked a lot about like the potential cardiac complications of clozapine, though it's important to kind of also keep in mind that there's like a general inflammatory response associated with clozapine. So, it's not always isolated to the heart, though it's kind of it's most well-known for, especially recently. It can be associated with, you know, hepatitis, interstitial nephritis, pneumonitis, sericitis, A number of things that make this monitoring of C-reactive protein very, very important, I think, especially initially on in starting the medication. So I would never treat a patient with clozapine without using CRP as like a screening tool to look for any sort of inflammatory issue that's arising. Just from a more base-level discussion of Clozapine, we've talked a lot about you know the number of potentially lethal complications that can come from this medication. But it's also, I think, important to just reemphasize that it can be a life-changing medication for people, and for those people, it can be the only option that they have. So when we decide to use it, we certainly involve them in the decision-making process, but we also use it cautiously. And that means kind of utilizing a, a slower titration, understanding that maybe they will be in the hospital a little bit longer as a result of that. But... But if they're able to remain on this medication, the potential benefits they could have could be pretty remarkable. Clozapine is the only psychotropic medication that has any sort of indication for treatment resistance. It's also the only medication, I believe, with an FDA indication for reduction of suicidality. And it's one of two that's been demonstrated to show that. Like I said before, it's a medication that is associated with better outcomes for people that take it. They live longer. They have better quality of life. For a lot of people, they can get back to living their life like they did or nearly like they did before they develop symptoms of schizophrenia. And so taking the time to safely introduce it and to cautiously monitor it, but be able to maintain someone on it can mean the difference between like an illness course that's fraught with chronic symptoms, with distress, impairment, rehospitalization, or being able to be out of the hospital and live the life doing whatever they want, whatever that may be. And so that's why we pushed for it to be used because it is so effective.
1: Thank you so much, Greg, for this wonderful explanation and, you know, teaching us things we never really would think of when it comes to a medication like glauzipine. You know, many times when it comes to drug abuse, cardiomyopathy, I think we always, first thing we think of are chemotherapies and cancer therapies, but it's fascinating that you really regard this medication to the same level in terms of monitoring and seriousness of cardiac adverse events that we regard as internists or probably cardiologists as other cardiotoxic medications. Thank you so much for all your great insight on this case. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I think this case was a really great example about, first, how we approach a very sick patient with initially undifferentiated shock, and specifically in this case, cardiogenic shock, knowing the importance of using invasive hemodynamic monitoring both for diagnosis and guiding management for rocket recovery. This patient was a young man who was given the best chance of his recovery, of his acute illness and shock. And subsequently, we learned that cardiomyopathy has a really large and wide range of differential diagnoses. And in this case, we touched on non-ischemic cardiomyopathy in how we ruled out different etiologies that are common. And the third thing that we learned from this case is that drug-induced cardiomyopathy is a really common and serious thing. And there are so many different medications that are implicated in this type of cardiomyopathy that has a large body of evidence and actually a statement from the American Heart Association summarizing those medications. And we learned, at least for me for the first time, the seriousness of cardiac toxicity of a Commonly used medication in the psychiatry field, which is clozapine. It's a really important medication in this patient population and has a really wide range of beneficial effects, and especially for treatment-resistant schizophrenia. But we learned that this medication, like many of the cardiotoxic medications that we commonly think of, like cancer drugs, has to be monitored really closely, given that it produces a systemic inflammatory response and can affect the heart very directly and indirectly and that was important to learn today. And lastly, we touched on social determinants of health for this patient specifically and this patient population in general with psychiatric illnesses and how they struggle to get access to important medications that they need the monitoring that they need to prevent complications of such medications that can definitely affect the outcomes of their illness on the short term and the long term. It was a really great discussion, the multidisciplinary approach from different specialists and different types of providers today. And I'm very grateful to be part of this team and learn about this case from everyone.
0: Well, thank you, Becca, Craig, Ashley, Anna, and Issa. What a really important discussion. And we basically saw a patient coming in with acute decompensated heart failure and cardiogenic shock and walk through a differential diagnosis process, arriving to clozapine-induced cardiomyopathy, and then thinking about very broadly about this patient from a multi-dimensional way with a multidisciplinary approach. So thank you so much. This was Really great and really worthwhile to come visit you all in Cleveland, Ohio. So thank you for your time and thank you for your expertise.
1: Thank you. And I hope you enjoyed Cleveland. And now I would like to introduce our expert for this case, Dr. Andrew Higgins. Dr. Higgins is a cardiologist at Cleveland Clinic who works as a cardiac intensivist with a focus on advanced heart failure and cardiac transplantation. Dr. Higgins did his cardiology training at Cleveland Clinic, including his critical care training and advanced heart failure fellowships. I had the privilege to work with Dr. Higgins in the intensive care unit when I was an intern, and it was such a pleasurable experience to learn from him. I couldn't find a better expert to comment on this case because of all the domains of medical knowledge that it encompasses, including heart failure, medical care in the cardiac ICU, and management and treatment of new systolic dysfunction.
6: My name is Andrew Higgins, and I'm one of the cardiac intensivists and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologists here at Cleveland Clinic. Thanks to Isa, Anna, Becca, Ashley, and Craig for presenting such an outstanding case, and I appreciate the opportunity to weigh in on it. We'll talk a little bit about this patient specifically, and then more broadly about how to approach the patient in the CICU setting with new or newly detected systolic dysfunction. This sort of case really highlights what I love about the field of cardiac intensive care. Although you spend a large portion of your time thinking about classic bread and butter cardiac physiology, every so often one of these patients that feels like they were plucked right out of a step one question rolls through your door. In addition to applying those same physiologic principles and stabilizing a critically ill patient, you get to do it while frantically searching PubMed for something you vaguely remember from first aid or from a clerkship 10 or 15 years ago. In moments like that, it's important to fall back on an algorithmic approach and to address these cases systematically. The first branch point that I push on my trainees in really any situation is that old saw from intern year sick or not sick. Although we often take this assessment for granted, in a place like the CICU, that determination may be very fluid from moment to moment and so it's important to reevaluate this frequently. Is this a patient that's rapidly going the wrong direction and to whom you need to be ready to offer inotropic or mechanical support rapidly, or is this a patient stable enough for you to begin a more comprehensive diagnostic evaluation? Looking at this patient in particular, he certainly seemed to be on the sicker end of the spectrum initially, with hypotension requiring vasopressor support and multiple markers of end-organ hypoperfusion, including lactatemia an elevated creatinine and elevated transaminases. Given end-organ hypoperfusion, but with early signs of clinical stabilization on vasoactive support, I would categorize this patient as having sky-stage C shock And Anna and Becca, of course, did the right thing by rapidly moving to fully hemodynamically phenotype this patient with a pulmonary artery catheter. These PA numbers alone are immediately concerning, with multiple high-risk features beyond just the low index, including a low cardiac power output, a high CVP to wedge ratio and a PA pulsatility index of less than 1. This tells a story of significant biventricular dysfunction, which starts to narrow both our differential as well as our potential options for mechanical support if he were to begin to decline. Thankfully, he responded well to the overnight team's initial measures and were now in a position to begin moving down that algorithm with a more systematic search for causes for acute reduction in systolic function. Where do we start? By the time you're beginning a more organized etiologic evaluation in the CICU, the patient will usually have had an initial round of testing done by the ED or the floor and may come prepackaged with a working diagnosis from these prior teams. It's important to review that primary data, but to the extent that you can to try to avoid anchoring on the initial suspicions of prior teams and to try to reevaluate the patient with a fresh set of eyes. Towards this end, I typically begin with repeating a focused history, trying to establish a few key things. First, what did the weeks and months leading up to the presentation look like? Is this truly an acute heart failure syndrome? Is it an acute decompensation of a chronic problem? Or is it something in between, with a new issue being superimposed on a background of chronic lower-grade dysfunction? Although we'll talk more about ischemia specifically, are there historical features that raise your suspicion for underlying coronary disease, such as hyperlipidemia, diabetes, tobacco abuse, or a compelling family history? Is there an acute stressor that may lead us, particularly in conjunction with a compatible echocardiogram? to consider a diagnosis of takotsubo or stress cardiomyopathy. Are there preceding non-cardiac symptoms such as fever or respiratory symptoms that would prompt consideration of a myocarditis, either infectious or otherwise? This is also when a thorough review of their medications and possible toxic exposure should be performed, including alcohol, amphetamines, cocaine, but also extending to therapeutic medications which may be cardiotoxic, as was critical in this case. This includes not only medications which may induce a myocarditis like plazapine, but also negatively inotropic medications such as beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, particularly verapamil and diltiazem, and antineoplastic agents which may exert cardiotoxic effects through a variety of mechanisms, ranging from direct cytotoxicity, as with anthracyclines, to coronary vasospasm, as can be seen with kappacitabine and 5-FU, to immune-related adverse events, as was discussed in the recent Nerds case of immune checkpoint inhibitor associated myocarditis. Moving along the list of diagnostic considerations, I fully agree with Becca that coronary ischemia is already quite low in the differential. The lack of an antecedent chest pain syndrome, a non-ischemical electrocardiogram, and a chest CT with minimal coronary calcifications, as well as the presence of biventricular dysfunction all drive this down on my list of possibilities. With that said, an uncommon presentation of a common problem still has to be considered. And as cardiogenic shock complicating acute myocardial infarction confers such a high mortality, the consequences of missing ischemia can be dire. Urgent revascularization remains one of the few ways we can rapidly move the needle for mortality in AMICS, and given this, despite our suspicion that this is a non-ischemic process, I think it was very reasonable to move to define the coronary anatomy early here. As the ischemic workup is being initiated, it's important to ensure that this patient with a new acute decline in LV function receives truly thorough echocardiography. We're all familiar with that five-clip echo done overnight by a busy and adrenergic overnight team, and I think that although it's critical to get that first look done as soon as possible, it's also important to obtain a more systematic evaluation as soon as the patient's been stabilized. What additional context do you see? Is this truly global, or is there focality suggesting a regional ischemic process? Are there stigmata of chronicity with thinned-out walls, suggesting that this is an acute decompensation of a chronic problem rather than something truly de novo? Do you see a boggy, edematous ventricular septum compatible with a fulminant myocarditis? Did we maybe miss out earlier on a significant valvulopathy contributing to this systolic dysfunction? In addition to the classic example of severe AS leading to a drop in LVEF, acute severe AI can compromise coronary perfusion pressure and can lead to a diffuse subendocardial ischemia, which mimics a myopathic process. Acute severe aortic regurgitation may be subtle with just a brief flash on color Doppler due to the size of the regurgitant orifice area and can be missed on an overnight echo if you're not looking specifically to exclude this. In addition to the echo evaluation, during these initial stages, I'll also re-review their electrocardiography, looking for signs of low voltage, again searching for evidence of ischemia if not already excluded, and monitoring their burden of ectopy, new dysynchrony, or AV block that may either be independently contributing to their decompensation or may herald a process associated with acute electrical instability such as giant cell or sarcoid. It can also be helpful to try to track down older recordings or prior vitals, because a chronic high resting heart rate may signal more chronicity than we originally appreciated, or may prompt consideration for a tachy-induced myopathy, which confers a better prognosis than many of the other things we're talking about here. In parallel with this, a focused laboratory evaluation is important, both for prognostication by looking at the peak and cadence of the troponin and BNP rise, as well as the extent of end organ compromise as evidenced by the degree of azotemia and LFT elevation. This initial blood work is also a major component of our search for an underlying etiology. Do we see significant hypo- or hyperthyroidism, which could precipitate an acute decompensation of heart failure? Is there a peripheral eosinophilia, as may be seen with an eosinophilic myocarditis, or do we see a marked hyperferatinemia, as may be seen with hemochromatosis? From an infectious standpoint, in the setting, we routinely test for HIV as well as for SARS-CoV-2 and other common upper respiratory pathogens. Testing for other infectious etiologies as a variable yield but can be considered on a case-by-case basis based on the patient's travel history and other exposures. Serologic testing for a rheumatologic etiology should also be considered. Past these initial measures, there's considerably more variability in what the next step is and what's most appropriate. Cardiac MRI can be extraordinarily helpful to definitively measure ventricular function and valvulopathy, to clarify regionality if present, and to quantify the extent of inflammation and scar burden. Unfortunately, obtaining adequately diagnostic MR imaging in this context can be challenging, partially because many patients are precluded from MR imaging by their supportive devices, and many others will have significant limitations on imaging quality due to their tachycardia or due to increased respiratory motion artifact. You also have to ask yourself if you're okay with that patient being off the floor and out of your sight for an extended period of time. The answer is usually no when they're early on in their CICU course until you have a better sense for their clinical trajectory. Lastly, what about the role of endomyocardial biopsy in the acute setting? The ACC/AHA scientific statement on this gives a class 1 recommendation for biopsy in the setting of unexplained new-onset heart failure of less than 2 weeks duration, particularly in the context of a non-dilated LV with associated hemodynamic compromise. It also gives a class 1 recommendation for its use in the context of unexplained new-onset heart failure of a longer duration for 2 weeks to 3 months in association with LV dilation with new VT, high-grade EV block, or failure to respond to usual care within 1 to 2 weeks. That's a pretty broad population, and with these recommendations acknowledged, biopsy is not without risk, even with careful fluoroscopic and echocardiographic guidance. Given this, in patients like the one discussed today, we tend to forego biopsy and more often reserve it for situations where we have a high suspicion for underlying giant cell or eosinophilic myocarditis, usually in the context of more progressive or persistent hemodynamic compromise or with persistent VT or AV block. As with MRI, this can be made more challenging by the patient's mechanical support or by the anticoagulation for their mechanical support, and it's always a conversation about whether the diagnostic information and prognostic guidance is worth the upfront risk. We can usually pause the anticoagulation for a brief period of time to get the biopsy and then resume it afterwards with relatively little risk as long as they're flowing adequately on their temporary support. Again, these cases are just fantastic because in addition to the upfront excitement of triage and stabilization, they give you an opportunity to dive into the patient's history and search for what you think could be driving their presentation. Thank you again to Issa, Anna, Becca, Ashley, and Craig for the opportunity to discuss such a great case.